0: There's a lot of noise in our world right now. There's more stress, anxiety, and competing priorities and pressures than ever before. Add to that the noise that comes when our work life collides with our home life. That all has an effect on our self-talk and the messages we're repeating to ourselves. We all have an inner voice where we process what's going on around us. But how do we prevent ourselves from getting caught in our own feedback loops where it turns into worry and something called chatter? How do we turn down the volume both outside and inside our heads so that we can perform at our best? This is what we're talking about in the next episode of the podcast, Resilience at Google. I'm Lauren Witt the head of global resilience at Google. In this podcast series, we're pairing leading neuroscientists and psychologists with mental performance coaches to uncover the science behind resilience and high performance. And to help us put into practice tips and strategies to respond to change and daily challenges. Today, we have a conversation with Ethan Cross, our neuroscientist and experimental psychologist at the University of Michigan. He specializes in emotional regulation and he is the author of the book, Chatter.
1: I think we are living through uh, what I've described recently as the chatter event of the century because we're living through a time that is filled with uncertainty and a lack of control. The good news is that there's a lot of science and science based tools that we can use to manage that chatter.
0: With him, we have Lauren Johnson, a mental performance coach and consultant who's worked closely with professional athletes, corporate leaders, and organizations. Mental performance has a lot to do
2: with accepting your reality and choosing your response, especially when things are happening outside of our control. The goal is not to ignore it, but to understand where your power lies and where your effort is best placed and in turn more effective.
0: They're here to tell us about positive self-talk and controlling our emotions instead of letting them control us. I think the subtitle of Ethan's book says it all, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Let's dive into the next episode, Chatter. Well, thank you for joining us today for our Resilience at Google podcast. We started a project a little over a year ago and really focused on meeting the moment and how do we, during these dynamic and uncertain times, develop the skills or the habits or the routines to show up in the moments that we're in. And there's a lot of noise around us at any given point in time. And so today we're really excited, Ethan, to talk about you and your work and your book called Chatter, and for Lauren to tell us how to take the science and to put it into practice from a mental performance standpoint. But Ethan, let's start with you. You are an experimental psychologist. You are a neuroscientist. These are big words that I think every parent wants their child to grow up to be. But what in actuality do you do?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. And what I do is I study self-control. And here's how I define self-control. It's our ability to align our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors with our goals. So what that means is if you want to think, feel, or behave in a particular way, what are the, the psychological tools that allow you to do that? That's what I spend my time thinking a lot about, and not just thinking about, but also doing research on.
0: A constant challenge, I'm sure, to navigate humans who are very unpredictable. Lauren Johnson, thanks for joining today. You are a mental performance coach. You work with elite athletes at the professional level. You also work with corporate executives, managers, leaders, employees. What does your work look like? So I'll start with what I don't do.
2: I'm not a clinical psychologist. I do not diagnose and treat any clinical disorders. I get to work very closely with very incredible people that do that. What I do is I teach the development of mental skills that actually enhance our ability to show up as the best version of ourselves. So it's being able to manage our inner worlds that allows us to optimize performance even when our circumstances may not be so optimal.
0: Optimizing our inner world, I think we can just jump off from there and straight into our main topic today, which is this term chatter. Ethan, your book goes into great details, but as we kick off this conversation, what is chatter and how does it affect how we perform and react?
1: Yeah, ha- happy to. So when we experience adversity, many of us reflexively turn our attention inward to try to work through our problems. We've got this remarkable ability to introspect, and that ability serves us well in many cases, and so when we're struggling, we try to activate it. The problem is that oftentimes when we focus our attention inward to work through our problems, Those attempts to find solutions backfire. We don't end up problem solving. Instead, we start worrying and catastrophizing and ruminating. We get stuck in these negative thought loops that are what I call chatter. It is wild how impactful this inner voice that we have when it runs astray and morphs into chatter, just how toxic it can actually be. It can impact us in three domains of life that we care a great deal about. It can make it really hard for us to think and perform. It can create friction in our relationships with other people, and it can also damage our physical health. One of the hopes I have for this book is to really normalize that experience for people. And the good news is that there's a lot of science and science-based tools that we can use to manage that chatter. One thing it does is it makes it really hard for us to think and perform. We only have so much attention that we could focus at any given moment in time. And if all your attention is being consumed by the chatter that doesn't leave a whole lot left over to do the things we often want and need to do, like our jobs or focusing on our, our partners and listening to our kids and what they have to share with us. So that's one way it can sink us. The other way it can sink us, and I'd love to get Lauren Johnson's take on this, is there's a lot of work which shows that chatter can lead us to take behaviors that we execute automatically, and it can lead those behaviors to unravel. And so the example here is, let's say I'm giving a a big presentation to a live audience. I do this a lot. And over time, I've learned to do many things during those presentations without thinking. So I've learned to pace the stage, to move my hands up and down. I undulate, I vary my vocal tone. I I gaze around the audience. I'm doing those things without thinking based on experiences I've had that, that allow me to do that. If I start experiencing chatter, what ends up happening is I zoom in on that complex behavior and on the individual pieces. Am I moving my hands enough? Am I smiling sufficiently? And once you start doing that, the entire behavior unravels. Lauren, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that in the work that you've done with, with athletes that you've seen this happen a lot. Is that a fair assumption?
2: Yeah, absolutely. One that comes to mind is I was working with one of our, one of our hitters and he was 0 for 15. He was in a slump. So, I mean, the last 15 at-bats he went up, he was either struck out or he got out. And I asked him, I said, where are you placing the majority of your focus? And I remember him talking about how he was trying to solve this problem, and it was all mechanically based. It was, what are my hands doing? What does my load look like? And I explained it like, generally speaking, a normal, healthy individual were to run down a set of stairs, they would have no problem doing that. But if you ask them to think about what their joints are doing as you're jogging down the stairs, we're probably gonna trip over ourselves.
0: What I hear from both of you is that that chatter can knock us out of a position of focus and flow. As high performers, we wanna get into that space. Part of our program at Google is answering questions for Googlers. One of the questions that's come from Googlers is, how do we navigate this noise when things around us are changing? There's reorgs, there's manager changes. My role or my responsibility is shifting continually. And Ethan, you talk in your book a little bit about something called the psychological immune system. Sometimes the chatter is outside of us. The noise of everything around us is changing. How do we ground ourselves and center ourselves on what's important in controlling the controllables when everything outside of us is influencing our internal chatter?
1: So it's a great question. I think we are living through uh, what I've described recently as the chatter event of the century of the last hundred years because we're living through a time that is filled with uncertainty and a lack of control. And we know that human beings love those things when we don't have that. It can stoke our chatter. The good news is that just like our physical immune system, we've got a psychological immune system that offers us tools that we can use to deal with psychological threats. When I talk about tools and chatter, that's what I'm trying to do, offering people access to these tools that they already have but may not be aware of.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's really, really well said. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the here and now, what just happened, that we can't even see it three feet in front of us. And so, in those moments, it's really helpful to zoom out. And then, man, when the gap between where we are and where we want to be is so big, it starts to overwhelm us all the to do lists, all the you know, obstacles we have to overcome, all the work we have ahead of us. Sometimes the best thing to do is to zoom in. And so, I do think that it's, it's understanding when you may need it what are those triggers to know Ah, when i'm here it's typically helpful for me to back up and uh when i'm back here and i'm struggling it's typically helpful for me to really zoom in
0: one of the examples that we often talk about at google is the idea of a camera lens and so there's a lot of times when we evaluate our thoughts when we evaluate a project that's handed to us or when we look at a situation where we need to be intentional about zooming in on the details of that. And then there's other moments where we need to be very intentional not to get caught in the small details, but instead to zoom out and to look at the big picture and to look at the scope of it from a different lens, from a higher lens that perhaps other people involved with the project or the situation might have a view on as well
1: you know i think this is great advice to identify the the boundaries through which you're capable of really doing things given the circumstances one of the really challenging things that i think people often face is reminding themselves of that in the moment we often hear that it's important to change the way we think to change the way that we feel The problem often is that when we are consumed with the chatter, we forget this. We can't get unstuck. One of the things we know about human beings from research is that we are much, much better at giving advice to other people than we are following our own advice. We could weigh in on other people's problems with this amazing objectivity and sophistication of thinking. But when the same thing is happening to us, we crumble. And what we've learned is that there are psychological tools that can help us circumnavigate that psychological roadblock, if you will. Something that we call distanced self-talk. And what it involves doing is using language to try to shift your perspective and give yourself advice like you were given advice to your close friend. And the way you use language to do this is to use your own name and the second person pronoun you to silently coach yourself through a problem. And so that's one really simple tool that is very concrete that a person can use on the fly. Probably the first thing I do when I find chatter beginning to brew.
2: And I just wanna add on top of that, Ethan, Mental performance has a lot to do with accepting your reality and choosing your response. And acceptance alone can deal a lot with being able to manage our emotions in any given moment, especially when things are happening outside of our control. The goal is not to ignore it, but to understand where your power lies and where your effort is best placed and in turn more effective. And so one of the ways we can manage uncertainty is a kind of a two-step process. Number one, we can do a little bit of mental contrasting by thinking through what do we want to have happen? What's our plan of attack? And then what could go wrong or what could get in the way of that actually happening? These are obstacles. These are unforeseen circumstances. These are things outside of our control. We can then pair together implementation intentions where we do an if-then process. And as we do that, we're building competence. And the greater competence we have around some of these what ifs, these worst case scenarios, the greater our confidence in being able to manage them if and when they happen.
0: One of the things that's resonating for me is this opportunity to stop listening to ourselves and to start talking to ourselves and being intentional with that language. But our environment makes a big difference too the environment around us. And in the last couple of years, our work life and our home life have merged. Our office space has merged with our families. One of my favorite questions that Googlers have asked us over the last couple of years is how can I focus on getting my work done when the pile of laundries is staring at me from across the room? So I'm curious how our work environment and our home environments crisscross to sort of impact this chatter, turns it up, turns it down. How do we deal with that?
1: One of the most exciting sets of findings that I found when I was doing research on the book concerned our environments and how our physical spaces can impact the conversations we have with ourselves from the outside. If you know where to look around you and how to set things up, that can affect what's happening inside our minds in important and impactful ways. One thing that is really simple to do that has given me new meaning about some of my own chatter behaviors it involves cleaning and organizing. I would like to always describe myself as a clean individual, but in terms of being organized at home, right behind me, the the, the office looks great. But if I pivot my screen, like you're going to see the most glorious mountain of papers and books that you could imagine. And that's just how I roll. It's always been that way. But whenever I have experienced chatter, I've always done something very out of character, which is I start putting stuff away. I start cleaning. I start organizing. Now it turns out there's a whole science that speaks to this, and it has to do with this concept of compensatory control. What does that actually mean? What we've learned is that you can compensate for that, experiencing that uncomfortable state by exerting control and creating order around you. And so this is why so many people reflexively start cleaning and organizing when they're distressed. And knowing about how all this works gives you an option, right? The moment I start to feel the chatter brewing, I go do the dishes. So that's one thing you can do to manage your chatter from the outside in. Another thing is go for a walk in a green space if you can find one. What we see giving ourselves a little dose of nature does for us is it gives us the opportunity to restore our attention. Chatter consumes our attention in all the ways we talked about earlier. What happens when you're going for a walk in a park is our attention, it gently drifts onto those surroundings. We're just kind of taking it in. And when we do that, that gives us the opportunity to restore those attentional resources that our our chatter had just drained. The last thing that nature does is one of the things that I find most magical. It gives us the opportunity to experience the emotion of awe. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, like a sunset that you just can't contemplate the beauty of, or a tree that's been living there for hundreds of years. When we experience awe, when we're contemplating something so big that we have trouble explaining it, We ourselves feel smaller by comparison. And when we feel smaller, so does our chatter. We call it a shrinking of the self.
0: Google's been really intentional about bringing in the green spaces indoors. And we have little areas in all of our buildings around the globe that are Really, intentionally bringing the outside inside for that purpose to create a space for reflection and restoration, and even rest and recovery, we get a lot of just mental calm just by stepping into that nature area. I think that another piece
2: of knowledge that we can benefit from knowing is how our mind associates pieces of our environment, and there's different cues that become associated. And so if your common routine when you come home, maybe after work, is to come home, kick your feet up on the couch, watch some TV and relax. Now, let's say you're working on that same couch that your brain has initially created the connection of when I'm on this couch, I am to relax. Now you have two competing cues. Now you're having to retrain your mind to connect the couch to work. And so I think we can use that knowledge of how our mind and bodies connect to certain parts of our environment to our advantage the more we can create some kind of invisible boundaries in our home space between home and work the better we can actually stay focused within that environment because we can mitigate the competing cues that we would normally have by not creating those boundaries otherwise
0: So far, we've talked a lot about the skills that I can use for me when I'm going through those moments, but for managers and leaders, these are dynamic times and there's a lot of responsibility on them to care for their teams and care for the chatter that their teams are experiencing. One of the questions that we get a lot from Google managers and leaders is how can I help my team? How can I help my direct reports or extended organization manage their chatter when uncertainty arises? And so, how can they help with the chatter around their teams?
1: So, this is a great question. And there's a lot of, of science that speaks to what we can practically do in this situation to help those around us, our, our peers, our loved ones, and so forth. And there are really two core skills. The first deals with situations in which a colleague comes to you with a problem that they're experiencing chatter about, which happens quite a bit in, in both the personal and also the organizational domain. A lot of the messaging that we get from our culture suggests that in those instances, what you should just do is let that person just get it out, express what they're going through. Vent your emotions, don't keep it bottled inside. This is a very strong message we hear over and over again in popular culture. There has been a lot of research on venting, and what we have learned is venting can be really good for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between two people. But if all you do is vent in a conversation, what ends up happening is, the source of that chatter is still activated. It's not just activated, it's usually even, it's potentiated, right? Because you just keep on rehearsing over and over what's happened, like, would you believe what that person said to me? So you leave the conversation just as upset, just as anxious, just as angry, just as depressed as when you started. Here is how to talk about chatter productively. What you wanna do are two things. First, you do wanna take time to listen to what the person who comes to you with a problem is going through. It is important to empathize and connect and validate what they're feeling. But at a certain point in that conversation, you want to try to help broaden their perspective, help them reframe what they're going through so that they can ultimately nip that chatter in the bud and move on with their life and the things they need and want to do, like their job or their relationships. Now, there is an art to doing this well. When my wife comes to me with some chatter, I'm there for her. I'm listening. I'm learning about it. I'm nodding. At some point during that conversation, I'll say to her, Totally. Yeah, that sounds awful. You know, can I, I I have an idea? Can I offer you my thoughts on this? And sometimes she'll just pause and look at me and, and be like, No, I'm not done. Just listen. During other conversations, We'll do the same thing, I'll start listening and then say, hey, can I offer you my advice? And then she'll be like, please tell me what to do. Like That's why I'm coming here, I want it. So you wanna feel out where that tipping point is to go from listening to advising. But that's the formula for being a good chatter coach to someone else.
2: And I thought this was such an interesting point in your book when you talked about the science behind it in that there is a clear boundary between venting being of benefit And then it actually holding us and limiting us, as I was reading it, I could call on my own experiences that connected with some of that research. I was going to tell this story actually of my husband as well. And we actually have a pact where we ask each other, do you want me to listen or do you want my suggestion? And there was one time we were actually, we were driving in the car and I was working on my computer and there was an email that popped up. It's one of those emails that you get. And so I was really frustrated and I was venting to him and he asked me, you know, do you want my opinion or my suggestion or do you want me to just listen? I was like, no, I'd like to hear it. And he just asked me a simple question. And sometimes some of the most beneficial things is not always giving an answer, but directing our attention. And he directed my attention to the question, what typically helps you in moments like these? and it had me stop and think. It made me feel like he put me into a, the the distance self-talk without even knowing that's what he was doing. And so I went from being super identifying with what was happening in the moment to almost taking a third-party perspective and coaching myself through it. I said actually what typically works in these situations is to step away from it a little bit, let my emotions settle, and then come back to it later.
1: I love hearing that. He gets the Chatter Coaching Certificate. And, you know, that touches on a very basic principle that explains how all of this chatter stuff works. When we experience chatter, we zoom in really narrowly on the problem at hand, and you lose sight of that bigger picture, and what we find is really, really useful is this ability to step outside ourselves, to broaden our perspective. And there are lots and lots of different ways to do that. We call it getting psychological distance. There are lots of distancing tools out there. You know, I I list them all in the book. And by him telling you to, how do you typically do that? Yeah, he's, he's widening your frame. He's getting you to think of past experiences in which you've been successful. He's getting you to do a little bit of what we call mental time travel, which we know is a really effective tool so hats off to him for giving you that feedback when we're talking about do you want to listen or do you want me to advise you that pertains to situations where someone is coming to you specifically to talk about a problem to talk about their chatter as many of us know though there there are lots of situations where your friends your loved ones your colleagues they are mired in chatter but they're not coming to you for help. Then the question is, well, what do you do? Do you volunteer the support or do you do something else? How do you help someone who you know you can help, but they haven't asked you? The answer is to do something that we call provide invisible support. Help them, but without shining a spotlight on the fact that you're trying to help them. And this can take a variety of different forms. It can be things as simple as easing the burden on your colleague's plate. You can also do other things, like if there's someone on my team in my lab group who's struggling with their presentation skills, rather than pull them aside and say, hey, you really need to get your game up to par here, being able to communicate research is important, I might do things like have a meeting where the entire group talks about things that they've read that they found useful, or hey, I just came across this, let's discuss this new technique. You know, and then we all talk about it. So I'm getting the information to that person, but I'm again, not shining a spotlight on the fact that they actually are suffering.
0: And what I hear is that there's maybe two directions that managers and leaders can take. And one is prioritization and priorities of making it really clear. This is where you should focus, focus in, zoom in, or focus broader and sort of zoom out. But the second piece here is you're asking questions. Both of you keep asking questions. What is the worst thing that can happen here? What feedback can I provide for you in this moment? And so I think that's an interesting piece of it all where we can focus our attention and and how we can receive that feedback. I'd love to dive into a few of these examples that we see at Google often, right? So, Everyone wants to climb the ladder of success in any company that they're in. And it's usually anchored in that next promotion. We don't always get promoted every performance cycle. If we believe we should or deserve to get promoted, and yet we don't get promoted that cycle. How can we as individuals manage that chatter so that it is not self-destructive but instead can spin it for the future. And is there a tip or two for managers and leaders when they're having that conversation with someone? You're excellent. These are the things to keep doing to be excellent so that in the future, we can step into new, new opportunities.
2: It reminds me, especially when I go into the context of sport and in business, it reminds me of this idea that I didn't get the result I wanted. And I'm going to go back to that same example I started with, which was the the hitter that was for 15. And I remember I I showed up to the to the park and he came up to me and he's like, Lauren, I'm freaking out. (laughs) Like, I've tried everything. I've seen all the coaches. I've done it all. And he said, it's just it's nothing's working. I don't know what to do. And so I asked him, I said, what is your definition of success at the plate? Like, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, I would define success as getting a hit. It's that ultimate result. And I said, okay, let's pretend. I'm going to challenge you on this. Have you ever done everything right and not gotten the result that you wanted? He said, yes. And I said, have you done everything wrong and gotten the result, like gotten a good result? He said, yeah. I said, therefore, results alone won't make you better. Executing the right things will. And so sometimes we get so hyper-focused on you know, the promotion or that getting a hit that we tend to forget what it is that helps us to get there and understanding that we can't always control that end result, but we can control what we are executing. So I think it's really looking at it twofold is results are really, really important, but then can we break it down to help people understand how their actions are actually influencing them?
1: Yeah, I love just to add on to that, um, You know, shifting from focusing on outcomes to process can reduce the volume on our chatter because the process is under our control. On top of that, I think there's also a few other tools to layer on to help people deal with this kind of situation. Because when you're describing that scenario, you're being an amazing coach to the person who is coming to you with their problem. Now, When I'm hearing Lauren Witt, you ask me about, well, what happens if we find out from our supervisor that we didn't get the promotion? There are other people in one's mentoring network, I would imagine, who are gonna be really helpful in allowing the person who's struggling, helpful in asking them the kinds of questions that Lauren Johnson just asked that baseball player. And so I have different groups of advisors that I consult for different kinds of issues. When it comes to personal issues, there are like four people on my like speed dial right that I know I can go to and they can often help broaden my perspective exactly how we just heard Lauren Johnson do with the player but when it comes to work related stuff I've got a different board of advisors that I consult and so I think getting people to think really carefully about who are these little boards of advisors that we have I would imagine that many of us have access to those voices and just being really deliberate about consulting them when you're struggling I think can be a really useful, useful tool.
2: I love what you just said, because I was talking to one of my you know, chatter advisors and one that I would categorize in the work category. And he said, Lauren, I want you to call three people you're closest to and ask them, what is your biggest blind spot? And he's like, I do not want you to call your husband or your mother. <laughs> and so I, I just think that's so important because sometimes we will go to those people to make us feel better. But I think it's important to understand the difference between feeling better and becoming better. Not all feedback feels good, but to understand that one of the important pieces in terms of receiving feedback is listen. You don't always have to agree with every single thing the person says, but nobody wants to give feedback to someone who is constantly fighting them and going to war with them every time they try to give feedback. And so one of the one of the things that you got to do is just like buckle up, put like take out a sheet of paper and write everything they say down. Again, it doesn't mean you have to agree, but it allows you to open that line of communication. It also allows you to set it down and come back to it later when maybe those emotions aren't so high.
1: Yeah, this speaks to this idea that, you know, I call it the power and peril of other people. Other people can be a remarkable tool or a liability. And what I just find just so wonderful is that science provides us with a a blueprint for navigating those social relationships to to figure out how you can harness our relationships with other people to make them work for us rather than against us. So I would encourage people who are listening to both develop those chatterboards of advisors, consult them, but also do the, the kind of smart psychologically distanced self interrogation that we know can be helpful too
0: i've got one more question on a google scenario googlers are often asked to pivot based on the priorities of an organization and these shifts are really hard and i'm certain it happens on teams organizations companies across the world in that my perspective on this work isn't matching up to the reality of what's gonna happen or the priorities. How can employees navigate these moments of being pulled or shift when it, it actually is out of their control, but they still have to show up and perform?
2: Sometimes we are faced with looking up at this huge forest and we don't know We can't see the path. It's not clear. We have so many questions. And so sometimes one of the best things that we can do is going back into that mindset, not needing to have all the answers, not needing to have the path paved, but to really just think through, what is your next best step? Because we don't always have all the answers, but certainly one of the answers is what's next. And sometimes the best thing is to focus there.
1: Yeah, I would just add that as we talked about earlier, recognizing what you do versus don't have control over is a really powerful capacity that can channel our chatter. I know that there are lots of different tools that are out there that can be very, very helpful for people managing chatter. But I also know that different tools and different combinations of tools work for different people in different situations. And so I think the challenge that we all face is to learn what these tools are, number one, and to then start the process of self-experimenting. Start figuring out, hey, what are the three things that really helped me?
0: I love that because we have to remember that resilience is dynamic and it changes and it fluctuates and the tools that we need today are different than the tools we used yesterday. And there are new challenges and new opportunities to pursue and what got us here. Won't get us there. And so we have to be willing to take on those new skills and those new mindsets and those new approaches. Thank you guys for being with us today to talk through this. Quieting the chatter is not easy. As this conversation has progressed, you realize it's a daily process. It becomes a habit and a ritual almost of flagging when things have gone astray perhaps, and how to use these strategies to bring them back. So Lauren, Ethan, thank you for being here today. Ethan, thank you for writing a book that I'm handing out to my friends and family everywhere. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Resilience at Google. To learn more, you can read Ethan's book, Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. You can also find links to follow Ethan and Lauren's work by visiting our show notes until our next episode. We hope that what you've just heard gives you ideas and tools to meet the moments that matter the most to you.
2: This has been a production by the resilience team headed up by our one and only host, Dr. Lauren Witt. Special thanks to our leaders, Brian Glasser and Fiona Ciccone, for sponsoring this project. And of course, thank you to our People Innovation Lab, or PILab, led by Iowa Shirako, for providing us with the data to inform this conversation. And we'd like to thank our partners over at Long Story Short Media, executive producers Jessica Stewart and Bob Yule, producer Josh Hall, and editor Andy Strassel, for producing this podcast recorded remotely on Google Meet. If you're interested in other conversations hosted by Google, check out our Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place and can be found wherever you find your favorite shows.